Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this uh, new day and just thank you for uh, the opportunity to gather together and just continue to sharpen one another and increase our knowledge of you and increase our faith. And Lord, we just pray that you take this uh, service and this Bible study hour, everything that takes place today, and just really use it uh, for your honor and glory, we pray. And as always, if there's anyone here or within the sound of my voice that doesn't know your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as their one and only Savior, we pray that today might be the day of salvation. And uh, Lord, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I'm excited about uh, what we're going to talk about today. I've actually got a handout. We'll give that out here in just a moment, or you can go ahead and give it out. That's fine. Um, and uh, it was sparked by our discussion last week. It seemed to me that we really need to kind of linger a little bit longer here on the subject of eternal rewards, and uh, that's a very important biblical doctrine that doesn't get much attention. And so, uh, we were talking about it in the context uh, last week of eternal, the eternal state and Revelation 22. And so we're just going to take a little uh, uh, sort of detour for however long it takes to kind of work our way through this uh, doctrine. I think somewhere along the way in our now 70 sessions, <coughs> excuse me, of, of the uh, study of the end times, <coughs> we did already talk somewhat about this, but you know, this has been almost two years now, counting breaks and everything, and so uh, it's always good to review anyway, plus we've picked up a lot of people, and I don't think we went through it in, 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 with the same kind of handout that I'm going to be uh, talking about today. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. I just want to remind you uh, that the uh, new book is ready for release, and you can get a sneak peek if you go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, spiritoftheantichrist.org. Uh, volume 2, really, really pleased with how it came out and just really came together nicely. Lots of powerful material in there. So the, the Spirit of the Antichrist.org, if you click on the new book, it'll show you the uh, table of contents, 15 chapters and the subsections, kind of give you a comprehensive overview of what we cover in the book. And uh, you can also read the preface. So more to say about that as we get closer to the release date. And uh, as always, we'll have some copies here for uh, the folks at Plum Creek Chapel. I was uh, on uh, Stand Up for the Truth uh, this past week, and uh, we talked uh, about light in the darkness. Uh, that was David's uh, topic, and always enjoy my time with him. So if you've not yet listened to that interview, you can go to uh, notbyworks.org and click on podcasts, and it's listed there in the list of recent podcasts. Uh, good, uh, good discussion with him, and always enjoy talking with him. He, he has some great insight, and appreciate all that Stand Up for the Truth has done. Uh, for Not By Works. So we're actually going to be on again October 24th, the day that the book goes on sale, pre-sale. So uh, looking forward to that next month. All right, so let's uh, <clears throat> go back to where we left off, and then we'll quickly jump to what I want to talk about uh, today. So we were uh, talking about uh, Revelation 22, how we would see Jesus, serve Jesus. We had a good discussion about that last week. But then we kind of uh, spent some time talking about what it means to sit on thrones with Jesus. And so I know for some of you, this might be fairly familiar territory. For others, maybe you've never thought about the doctrine of eternal rewards. But I want to take a moment to kind of dive into that subject and go down that, that road. So uh, what we're talking about when we talk about the doctrine of eternal rewards is the judgment seat of Christ. And one of the key passages, if you want to go ahead and turn there, is Romans chapter 14. 
Uh, and it's, this is interesting, as I was uh, studying this week, this is one of those weeks where we have a little bit of a sort of a crossover or you know, the Sunday sermon passage from Acts sort of coalesces with what we're talking about in Bible study. This happened a few times, but it's interesting. And when we get to Acts chapter 18, uh, that phrase, judgment seat of Christ, comes up in a historical setting. And uh, so we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. But let me read for you uh, Romans 14, 10 through 12, and then we'll kind of put it in context and use that as sort of our uh, you know, sort of starting point for this discussion. So Paul says in Romans 14, beginning in verse 10, Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess. A quote from Isaiah the prophet. So then, verse 12, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So Paul here makes it pretty clear. And there are several other passages, as we shall see in a moment, where he talks about the judgment seat of Christ. But we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's why it's important for us to understand what that is all about. What does that mean? What are the implications of that for how we live our lives now? So to kind of explain the Romans passage in context, let's kind of start with the big picture. I think everybody understands Paul's magnum opus is Romans. It's his key, um, you know, one of his doctrinal treatise, the main doctrinal treatise. Uh, the first three chapters of Romans talk about the depravity of man and how man is utterly hopelessly lost. But in chapters 4 and 5, he brings the good news that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and we can gain the righteousness that is necessary for entrance into heaven, that is, positional righteousness, only through faith. Then in chapter 6 through 8, he gets into uh, the, the, how our positional righteousness should manifest itself in practical righteousness. Once we are in Christ and declared perfectly righteous by faith, then that new man should live out, and we should walk in the new man, not the old man. We should walk in the spirit, not the flesh, and so on. Then chapters 9 through 11, he dives into the subject of Israel. How does Israel fit into this? Has God forsaken Israel, or has God just set them aside? And it's the latter. He's just set them aside. And then in the final five chapters there, he gets into just some practical advice, uh, everyday admonition for believers. So if we zoom into Romans 14... It's within that context of the everyday practical admonition for believers, how should we live our lives every day, that he makes the statement we just read about how we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And what he's saying there is that it's wrong to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ who relate to amoral activities differently than we do. In other words, there's a, there is a time to judge one another. Yeah, the Bible is very clear about that. When someone is sinning, we're called to you know, hold them accountable when someone is do, you know, committing moral sins, those types of things. But when it comes to preference issues, uh, what I'm calling here amoral activities, meaning they're not absolutes, then it's wrong for us to look down on other believers. We all live and die to the Lord. Uh, and the Lord is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. So judging others on preference issues is, is out of order. Because that's not our place. The Lord will hold us accountable someday and will either reward us or not uh, based on how we have behaved. Uh, now, if you look at Scripture as a whole, 
We know, as he says in verse 11 there, quoting Isaiah, that everyone will bow before the Lord, every knee shall bow and so forth. For church-age believers, that's at the Bema. That'll be our first opportunity to come before the Lord and bow down. For Old Testament saints, um, like David and Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and so forth, uh, their opportunity to do that will be at the second coming when Christ comes back and takes the throne of his father David and rules in glory, as he himself talks about in Matthew 25. Uh, for all unbelievers, for all unbelievers, that was going to happen at the great white throne. And we, we talked about that in Revelation 20. So, but every knee shall bow. So the bottom line is accountability day will come and it will involve individual accountability. Now, what we need to understand is that this, is not have, this does not have anything to do with our eternal destiny for believers. This is our rewards or lack of rewards. Our eternal destiny is set the moment we place our faith in Christ. In that instant, our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We're declared perfectly righteous. We're made right with a holy God. Uh, we're, the the, the uh, enmity with God is removed. We're reconciled to a holy God. Um, all of those things, we become a child of God, John 1, 12, happen. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, there are consequences, both now and in eternity, for how we live our lives. And if we choose to live in the flesh and not live out that new man that's in us, not live out the Christ-like righteousness that is now ours because we're a child of God, then we're going to miss out on earthly blessings. We're going to have the discipline of a loving father. We're going to have the natural consequences that come with not following God's guidebook, you know. Uh, if you touch a hot stove, you're going to get burned, that kind of a thing, natural consequences. Um, but there are also eternal consequences, and that relates to the bema. So the word uh, in Greek is actually bema. Um, many people will, will just call, I'll even call it the bema seed, just because theologically that's what it's come to be called. But the Greek word is bema. It's a, a, a eta there, not a, a epsilon. But anyway, uh, and so the word judgment seat is very common in, in the New Testament. In fact, as I mentioned, we're going to see it three times in the passage we're looking at today in, in Acts 18. But it, it literally refers to a, a raised platform where the Roman proconsul or other Roman dignitaries would sit in judgment. And, people, and it was usually in the town square, the agora, and people would bring their disputes before this raised platform and then a decision, a judgment would be uh, rendered. So in the New Testament, as I said, um, you see it quite a bit uh, in that context, both in the Gospels as well as in the early church and in the book of Acts. But Paul uses that concept that would have been very well known culturally to say, hey, someday there's going to be a spiritual Bema judgment. And that's when all believers will be evaluated based on their faithfulness. Um, now, so what is the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ? It's to reward believers for their acts of service done while in the body. Now, <clears throat> we talked not too long ago, in fact, I think I touched on it quite a bit last week, the famous passage in Luke 19, where Jesus tells the disciples the, the, the parable of the minas, but the point of it is, look, I'm going to go away for a while to receive the kingdom. While I'm gone, do business until I come. And when I come back, having received the kingdom, to inaugurate the kingdom, then I'm going to reward you based on what you've done with that one mina, that life of service that I left you with. And as you recall, we talked last week about 
how the one the stewards that did more with what they had uh, are rewarded with more if you're faithful in little you'll be faithful over much the ones who didn't really do anything with their mina didn't get any rewards well this is exactly what is we're talking about here with the bema uh, judgment uh, so uh, now if you look at your handout I want to just take a moment to show you how pervasive this teaching is uh, throughout the New Testament. Um, Jesus, even before the church age, is already talking in terms of this idea of rewards. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew 6 that we should do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is not talking here about eternal life because eternal life is not something we get based on what we do now. And he's saying what you do now is going to have a return on that investment, treasure-wise, uh, in heaven. And so... Uh, and then several times with his disciples, like the famous discipleship passage in Matthew 16, uh, when uh, Jesus says to his disciples, these are already believers, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. This is Matthew 16, the next verse on your list there. By the way, for those of you that are live streaming or watching this video later, if you'd like a copy of this handout on the Doctrine of Eternal Rewards, uh, just email me and I'll send you a copy. Uh, but we should have, everyone should have one here in the room. Uh, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. For what profit is it to a man? That word profit is uh, a fellow. It means to heap up or accumulate. In other words, what will you accumulate in, the, in, the, in eternity? Uh, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Don't be confused by the word soul in English. In Greek, it just means life. It's frequently used uh, of the physical, temporal life. It's not talking about the eternal aspect of man here. It's the word psuche. It does not mean eternal soul. Um, so, you know, what, what, what is it going to value to you is if you gain the whole world but you actually lose your own life? Uh, or what will a man give in exchange for his life? So this is another example where Jesus is making that uh, contrast between the freeness. We'll come back to the, some, some more New Testament teaching in a second, but I want to make the point that eternal life is a free gift received only by faith. It's, you, you just have to receive the gift, and we do that according to the New Testament by faith. In fact, according to the whole Bible, salvation is by grace through faith. Eternal rewards, by contrast, are a wage. So that's why Jesus puts some conditions here. Uh, hey, if you want to you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself. You got to take up your cross. You got to follow me. Well, you know, as we talked about when we went through our series on what is Calvinism in in on Wednesday nights recently, when you confuse the call to discipleship with the free offer of eternal life, you end up with a false gospel. And if you make Matthew 16 a requirement to get into heaven, then how can we ever know? If we've met the standard, have I denied myself enough? Have I followed Jesus enough? Have I put myself to death? That's the idea of take up your cross. 
But thankfully, those are not requirements to get into heaven, contrary to what some people say. Those are requirements to, for discipleship, and the degree to which we obey those things will determine whether we receive rewards. So rewards are a wage earned by doing good works. Now, what's, what's fascinating to me about you know, this whole theology of, of rewards is that God, who made us, of course, created us in his own image, we're his crown jewel, he knows our nature, even before the fall. Of course, he, he knew our nature. And our nature, even before the fall, was we are made to work, made to serve. We talked about how in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve a job before they'd even sinned. They were to tend the garden. So part of our nature as human beings is the desire to work to earn and uh, you know we start out early in life earning things we earn rewards when we obey you know we do our chores or obey our parents we earn grades in school we earn a high school diploma we earn a college degree if you go on to college so that we can get a job and earn a living our whole lives we're earning things and that's what makes it so difficult for a lot of adults when it comes to the gospel is because the gospel is the one thing you can't earn. You can't just work harder, do better, pay more. It doesn't work that way. It's a free gift. And But our nature cringes as that, at that. In my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, I have a whole chapter on this idea of pride that some people just think, you know, it, it, it's too valuable of a commodity, eternal life, to think that we can get it for nothing. But the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is it's absolutely free. Absolutely free. Paul says in Romans 3.25, we are justified freely by His grace. So that's a, that's a conflict, isn't it? Because every bone in our body, every fiber of our being says, I can do this, I can earn this, I can get this, I just got to work harder, be better. But the gospel says, nope, it's when you come to me empty-handed and say, I can't do this. I'm a sinner, dirty, rotten, filthy sinner. No merit before a holy God. Nothing I can do can patch that over. I've got to have a new life. And that new life comes from Christ. And it comes by faith. So we understand that, or at least should understand that, when it comes to the gospel and our positional righteousness. But where does that leave us in our day-to-day -day living? Because it doesn't change who we are. We still like to earn things. And so the doctrine of eternal rewards really is God's way of answering that natural inclination in us to do things and to store up treasure, right? Yeah. Um, absorbing this, um, does, does it, it becomes pretty apparent that most of our, our religious history different religions, different Christian right. sects um, have failed miserably in, the, in respect to judging fellow brothers and sisters. Okay, what, what do you mean? Like we've judged them based on based, their works, whether they're going to heaven? No, judged judge by what, uh, if they have different belief systems or different um, preferences as you were mentioning yeah. Well, so, so if I'm understanding you right, I, I think, you know, obviously we, we all are prone to improper judging. Um, there is a proper judging. You know, a lot of times people will flippantly quote Matthew 7 where Jesus says, Judge not lest you be judged. 
and say, oh, you should never judge. No, of course we're supposed to judge. The New Testament gives us tons of examples where we're supposed to note those who do such and such things and avoid them and those types of things. So there's a proper way to judge. But where I thought you were going with the question is that throughout church history, mankind has blurred this distinction of between salvation being a free gift and rewards being earned. I mean, early on, early on in, in the fact Paul's very first letter that he wrote, the book of Galatians, as we talked about in our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, he had told the people in southern Galatia about the good news that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead, and they can have forgiveness and eternal life if they'll just trust in him and him alone for it. And then yet, no sooner did he leave to move on to the next city than these legalists came in behind him to say, no, 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 no. That's fine if you want to have faith, but you've got to do this and this and this. And they started adding requirements to the gospel. And that's what we just spent uh, weeks talking about on, on Wednesday nights is the fact that many people make good works a requirement either up front or on the back end, like Calvinists do, to say if you don't have good works, you never were saved. Uh, but either way, good works become the determinative factor. And so this has been going on for 2,000 years. And fundamentally, every false religion and every false denomination within Christianity is false because it is requiring you to do something to be saved. Roman Catholicism. Well, you just do the seven sacraments. <laughs> you do that, you're good, you're in. You know, you come to confession, you know, you're in. Uh, that's wrong. <laughs> that's not what the Bible teaches. It's nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus didn't die a cruel death on the cross so he could get you most of the way there. <laughs> and you just do the rest to get you across the finish line. He paid it all. And if we could add one iota of uh, merit to our eternal destiny, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. But it's impossible for us to save ourselves. He had to pay the penalty. So, uh, you know, rewards are another an altogether different thing. Now, legalism, as it relates to eternal salvation, that's a whole separate subject. Because even some people that say, you know, you're saved by grace through faith only, they still have this legalistic tendency. And that type of behavior is not rewarded because, as we're going to see, uh, the rewards that are given are based on our motive, not what we do. I think there will be tons of people, tons of believers standing at the beam of judgment who did a lot outwardly. But what we don't know is what the attitude of the heart is. And if you're doing it to get noticed, to get attention, to make people like you, you know, all of those things, that's you have your reward already. You're not going to get your reward in heaven. But at the same time, I think there are going to be a ton of people that are have accumulated a lot of rewards that we would never have guessed because they're quiet, humble, unassuming, just serving the Lord, loving Him every day and trying their best to serve Him. And so, uh, so legalism is an altogether separate subject. But what I want us to understand is that this is a woefully neglected doctrine, but it's a vital doctrine. Uh, and that is the doctrine of eternal rewards. At the back of, uh, in, the, in the appendices of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have a sheet there that gives a list of motivations for believers to do good works. And there are many. There are, I think I have 20 or 30 in that list. One of them is to store up treasures in heaven, to earn rewards. That's not the only motivation. There are many motivations, biblically. Uh, gratitude for our salvation is the number one motivation. A uh, desire to set a good example for others. A desire to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. Uh, all kinds of things the Bible talks about. But certainly on that list, 
because it gets so much attention in Scripture, is this notion of re earning rewards in heaven. And those rewards, by the way, are, uh, you know, many of them, as we're going to get to in this uh, sort of side uh, study, are related to our position of service in the kingdom, which is why we're doing this, because last week we kind of talked about that, uh, and I think it was hard for a lot of people to conceptualize this notion of reigning with Christ or serving in positions of authority in the kingdom. But that's all part of uh, the rewards. Uh, so every New Testament writer, uh, with the possible exception of Jude, talks about eternal rewards. Uh, we mentioned a couple uh, from Jesus' teaching. You can see several there from Paul's teaching. We looked at Romans 14 already. Let's just look at a couple of others. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Paul says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, again, when you understand fundamentally the distinction between salvation and uh, rewards, then when you see these passages, they make a lot more sense. Most people have tunnel vision when it comes to the Bible. They think there's really one category, you know, I mean, one concept, heaven or hell. That's it. Everything boils down to heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. So when they see these types of admonitions, they think, oh, I got to do this to get to heaven. Am I really going to heaven? Because I'm not doing this, you know, that kind of thing. But when you understand there's two buckets that we put these verses in, is this a positional truth passage? Is this a positional righteousness passage, a eternal salvation passage, or is this a sanctification passage, a discipleship passage, an eternal rewards passage? And those are the only two options. So you got to always ask yourself, which bucket does this go in? So let's read it again. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, if that reward of the inheritance is eternal life, then that means our eternal life is contingent upon our actions, our behaviors, what we do, and, and whether we do it heartily or not uh, as we interact with other people. Now, that would contradict the, the totality of clear passages in Scripture that say that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, Titus 3.5, but according to His mercy that we're saved, or uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that can't be talking about eternal salvation. So uh, the reward of the inheritance, says very plainly in verse 24. Now, the word inheritance, contrary to what some people suggest, is not a technical term that always means rewards. Sometimes our eternal life is an inheritance that we get because Jesus gave it to us. So again, context has to determine meaning. In inheritance just means something that you get. It can mean a reward, as it clearly does here, and it can mean eternal life, depending on uh, the context. Uh, so let's look at a couple more here from Paul. Uh, how about 1 Corinthians 9? 1 Corinthians, or actually as long as we're in 1 Corinthians, let's start in, verse, in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3 is a classic foundational passage for the doctrine of eternal rewards. He says, beginning in verse uh, 
12, let's pick it up in verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, the beam of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And he goes on to describe in uh, chapter 4, verse um, 4, For I know nothing against myself, yet I, uh, uh, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges is uh, the Lord. Um, Therefore, judge nothing before its time. The Lord will bring both the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Chapter 4, verse 5. So there you go. The counsels of the heart are what we're talking about. He's not talking about legalistically, you know, how many times did you pray? How much money did you give to the church? How many minutes a day do you read your Bible? Those kind of checklist approach. He's just talking about your heart. Uh, I mean, we should do those things. Those are all natural outgrowths of our spiritual maturity. But we don't do them legalistically. We do them based on our heart. So what's your heart attitude? And, and that's what's going to be rewarded. And as you know, he mentions here, for some people, they'll, everything will be burned up, but yet they're still going to be saved. They're still going to get into heaven. When you, when you look at chapter 9, Paul actually includes himself in this evaluation. Uh, he says, in beginning in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now again, think about those two buckets. Is our ability to obtain eternal life based on how we run, how we live our lives? Of course not. It's based on having received the free gift of salvation. It's a gift, right? So this should tell you right away, we're not talking here about eternal life. We're talking about rewards. And we should run in such a way that we're going to obtain the prize. He goes and gives a couple of examples. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, and thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest while I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, if Paul's talking about eternal life here, then Paul in this passage must be saying he's worried that he's not going to get to heaven. To be disqualified, if that means not go to heaven, then Paul's basically saying, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. Yet this is the same man who said elsewhere, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul had no question about his eternal destiny. Disqualified, there's the word adakimas uh, to mean fail the test. And it's the same word that James uses when he talks about the testing of our faith and uh, trials and tribulations and so forth. Um, to, to be approved is to pass the test. To be disapproved is to fail the test. And if you're disapproved, if you fail the test, you don't get the prize. And that's what Paul's saying here is I, wanna, I don't want to be disqualified when I stand before the Bema and not get the rewards that, that I am striving for. Uh, so several other passages where Paul talks about rewards uh, John uh, talks about it. For example, First uh, John two twenty eight. He says, "Abide in in Him, little children, so that when He appears, you won't be ashamed, but you'll be confident at His coming." See, that's not something we have to worry about in terms of heaven or hell. We don't have to cross our fingers and, you know, 
hope against hope that I, you know, I sure hope I get in someday. And yet that's the way a lot of people view salvation. They think, oh, I can't know for sure till I die. I'm pretty sure. I'm 90% sure. 95% sure. Well, if you're not 100% sure, you might as well be 0% sure. Because the Bible says you can be 100% sure. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, then it's a done deal. Jesus says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Right? John 10, 28. We've been talking about that this week. Um, so, you know, there's no doubt that about your eternal destiny if you've done the one thing the Bible says you have to do. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, but there is a question that we revealed at the judgment seat when our lives are uh, evaluated and rewarded uh, accordingly. Um, but so, so John says, hey, abide in Christ. That means stay in close fellowship with him. So that, I mean, think about it. How... Um, bad would it be to for the rapture to happen and you're in the midst of living in sin you know you don't want that to happen it doesn't change where you're going but there's consequences to that by the way you don't want to live in sin period regardless of the timing of the rapture it's just a bad idea sin leads to great unpleasantness there's all kinds of consequences of sin you know temporally in this earth as well as at the beam of judgment as well as just god's discipline there's all kinds of Sin is a destructive killer. As James tells us in James 1, if it's left to its own devices, it, when it's full grown, it'll kill you. John even tells us in 1 John 5, there's sin that leads to death. So sin is an equal opportunity killer. It'll kill unbelievers and send them to hell, and it'll kill believers and send you to heaven. <laughs> sin kills, all right? That's what sin does. Um, but uh, specifically, John is sort of making the appeal that, look, Christ is going to come back someday, and we want to be found faithful in that moment. That's what we want to be found. In, in his second letter, he says, um, uh, 2 John 8, See to it um, that you don't lose what you have worked for. Let me look it up. It escapes me at the moment. Yeah. Look to yourselves that you do not lose the things you have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Now, again, which bucket? The minute he says the things you work for, that ought to go ding, 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 ding. That's not talking about heaven because we don't get heaven based on our works. Multiple passages that make that clear. So he's talking here about rewards. He even uses the word reward. You want to receive a full reward. So evaluate yourselves. By the way, this is the same thing that's going on. I don't have it on the list there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He's not saying examine yourselves to see if you're a Christian and you're going to heaven. He's saying examine yourselves to see if you're walking by faith. Because earlier in the letter to the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5, he says, walk by faith and not by sight. So we ought to, as John says and as Paul says, we ought to regularly be taking stock of our lives and, and ask ourselves, what's our perspective? Are we walking by faith or are we living in the flesh? So 2 Corinthians 13, 5, contrary to the vast majority of commentators, is not suggesting that you examine your life and your behavior and your works to see if you're going to heaven. Paul was going to heaven, and if you've trusted Christ, so are you. What he's saying is examine your life to see if you're walking by faith. Yeah. Kind of a off, uh, different question, I think. But do you think that faith and intellect are at odds with each other? I mean... No. The question is, are faith and intellect at odds with each other? Absolutely not. Faith, by definition, is intellectual. 
You don't believe with your big toe. You believe with your brain. Okay, it's that's the way we believe. And in Scripture, mind and heart are used interchangeably of the same thing. I guess so. when I say in, intellect, I mean more of an analytical brain definition. In other words, a scientific approach where, you know, basically science says you don't believe anything unless you can prove it. Right, so... There's so, no faith involved. There's, there's basically, I'll believe it if I can prove it. Okay, so... The definition of faith is given to us in Scripture, Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you're correct, that, and that's a good point, that science tends to say if you can't see it, feel it, hear it, smell it, you know, whatever, touch it, you're not, it's not real. In that sense, but that, to me, intellect speaks to the brain. That's more rationalism and scientific method. Yeah, some and, people and, are or reason. bent more towards... Yeah. You know, some people are more artistic or sure. some people are more analytical and mathematical. Yeah, so that's exactly what it is. It's analytical. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there is a, a, um, co a contrast, if you will, between faith and reason, right? We can't okay. reason ourselves into heaven. Mm -hmm. We have to believe it. But when it comes to the gospel, you have to know and believe it. So, by definition, to know something requires intellect. You've got to be able to understand it. So, if you don't understand the gospel, uh, if you're not capable of understanding the gospel, if you're mentally handicapped or you're a child so young that they have no ability intellectually to comprehend sin and salvation and the Savior, uh, then uh, they're covered by God's grace, as I've said before. But, uh, but I just wanted to be clear I was answering a question you didn't ask <laughs> uh, sorry about that okay. it's an occupational hazard um, but uh, there are people out there that suggest well you can believe it intellectually but until you believe it in your heart you're not really saved and I just don't buy that that's a false dichotomy faith is faith you either believe it or you believe something or you don't and and you, you there's only one way to believe it and that's with your mind so um, so you know, we can go through the rest of these. Uh, I, that's why I wanted to give you the handout. But I just listed, you know, several places in the New Testament where, you know, rewards come up. And again, it's it's every author. Uh, Jude is the only one I could find that doesn't doesn't have an explicit reference to uh, rewards. Um, so now let's take a look at some rewardable behavior. Uh, so right off the bat, you see in James 1.12 that enduring trials of all kinds is going to be one way of storing up treasures in heaven. Um, these are not in any particular order, just my stream of consciousness, but, but I do find it interesting that this one seems to come up again and again. James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, perasmas, uh, which is uh, trials, doesn't mean like temptation to evil but trials S same idea that he says up in verse 2 count it all joy when you fall into various trials same word uh, blessed are the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved remember we talked about disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9 27 I think it is ah dokimos it puts a negative in front of it the a in English we do the same thing an atheist for example is one who believes there's no God right agnostic agnosis means that there's no knowledge of God. We're not. We don't know if there's a God, but there might be agnostic. So ah, dokimos meant disqualify. Here it's just dokimos. You've been approved. You've passed the test. What happens when you pass the test? You will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. 
Now we're going to get into, as we go through this in the next week or two, uh, some of the rewards. Now we're just talking about behavior, so don't get hung up on crowns. That's one of the big rewards. We'll talk about that. But the point is if you endure trials. So I want you to think about that. This is where the doctrine of eternal rewards really has practical value, like all doctrines in Scripture, of course. But the next time you're struggling with a trial, I want you to think, okay, this is a test. And I'd like to pass this test so that I can hear, well done. If I grumble and complain and woe is me, poor me, why me, you know, why this again, you're probably going to have another test until you get it right. You know, um, So enduring trials is, um, is, a, is a rewardable behavior. Hebrews 11.6, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Again, this goes to the counsels of the heart and our attitude. Are you diligently seeking the Lord? Every day are you saying, Lord, what can you show me? What can you teach me? Show me your presence. Those kind of, are you diligently seeking the Lord? Hebrews, the Lord is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Um, so we've got about four minutes left, so let's just pause there. We'll come back, pick right up here with some more rewardable behavior. But any thoughts or comments uh, today? Yeah. Yeah. To the third and or health, wealth, and prosperity. Yeah, that whole. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So the comment for those online is that it seems like for a lot of believers, even sometimes ourselves, the rewards tend to focus on the here and now, the earthly blessings, uh, and that's certainly true. So that's why it's important to have a, a comprehensive understanding of the consequences of sin and the benefits of righteousness, practically. So we already understand, eternally, it's pretty simple. You're sold under sin, on the road to hell, nothing whatsoever you can do to save yourself. You must trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can save you. It's a free gift, absolutely 100% free. No strings attached, no conditions. Once you're saved, it doesn't matter what you do after that in terms of whether you go to heaven. But it very much matters. Don't, you know, hope my enemies out there don't cut off my quote and say, it doesn't matter what you do after you're saved. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't matter as it relates to eternal destiny. Because that's a gift given to you by Jesus and he doesn't take it back. <laughs> um, but it absolutely matters in terms of practical consequences. And so that's where we have to have a comprehensive understanding of that. There are temporal consequences of sin and temporal benefits of righteousness. James makes it very clear in chapter 1 that it's not just hearing the word that brings blessing, but hearing the word and doing the word. So as you're obedient to the word of God, living out your life, God's going to bless you. And that blessing can take on all kinds of forms. It doesn't you know, God is not first and foremost retributive. So another whole sort of footnote to all this is that we live in a fallen world and sometimes bad things happen to good people, right? So even though you're walking faithfully with the Lord, doing His Word, serving Him with the right heart attitude, you may still experience some negative things in life, but that's not God spanking you. That's just the fact that we live in a fallen world. So you have to understand that too. But in general, you know, in Proverbs is very clear about this, almost all the way through the book of Proverbs. You know, if you 
Walk wise, you're going to be blessed. If you walk foolishly, oops, you're going to fall in a pit. You know, that kind of thing. So we need to understand that blessing comes from obeying. I'm talking about on earth. And consequences come from not obeying. But we also have another whole category, and that is eternally. For believers, the consequences of sin means you don't get rewarded eternally. And the consequence of godliness, you do get rewarded. By the way, there's consequences eternally for unbelievers in both categories. Eternally, if they've never believed the gospel, they're going to be at the great white throne judgment and left to, to go to the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet forever, eternally. But guess what? There's also eternal tor degrees of torment. Jesus talks about this in Luke 12. So the, the ungodly believer who never trusted Christ and, and, and spent his or her life, you know, serving Satan and tormenting people and, you know, um, sex trafficking rings and things like that, they're going to burn a little hotter than the person who just, you know, rejected the gospel, was generally a pretty moral person, lived okay, but just never trusted Christ for their salvation, right? So there's temporal consequence and benefit, eternal consequence and benefit, but none of those consequences have anything to do with eternal destiny. That's either you've received the free gift or you haven't. Now, someone had a hand over here, then we'll go back over here. Yeah. Yeah, so the comment there is about regret and guilt and those things. We're going to get to that as we move forward in this sheet. So can I defer to that till possibly next week? Um, but yeah, it's, it, that's a tough one for people to get their hands around is that since heaven is a place of eternal bliss, how can there be that moment of regret? Well, there, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. There is that moment as, at the Bema judgment where for that moment we're going to have uh, regret. Otherwise, 1 John 2.28 doesn't make sense. So... Um, you know, in each, once we get past the Bema judgment, which happens at, we're going to talk about the timing of it, but it happens after the rapture, um, then there is no regret at that point, but in that moment there will be. And then, yeah, last question. Um, this is more of a statement, maybe. I, shouldn't it be more, shouldn't the only motivation necessary be that Jesus is forgiving your, your sins as far as, as, far as motivation? Uh, to be a Christian. I mean, rewards are, are certainly something we are uh, we're conditioned to work for right. in this world, and they make sense to us in this world, but the only reward that really matters is whether you get, it, get to go to heaven. Uh, no, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but the rewards are absolutely an explicit motivation. Jesus says, do things today that will store up treasures in heaven. Paul says, do things today so that you will receive the reward. Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely, that's what this whole first page is, is the number of places where the Bible points to rewards as a motivator. Uh, it's not the only motivator. And yes, gratitude that our sins have been forgiven is absolutely a motivator as well. But there are many motivations in Scripture for us to live out our lives uh, in, in a godly way. Uh, setting an example for others, those types of things. So in the appendix to Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have a, a bunch of them listed there, and that's not comprehensive, but it's just a list that I put together for that book. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I understand that. I think that's uh, when people 
take that approach. It's, it's overly simplistic. Um, I think ultimately, if you want to boil it down to one thing, it's the counsels of the heart, but that has to do with why you do what you do. So there are many things that we sh can and should do uh, you know, in living the Christian life. All of them should be done with the right attitude, but many different things are rewarded and, and serve as motivation. As the example I gave a moment ago, next time you face a trial, um, hopefully now, I mean, hopefully nobody faces a trial this week and someone's going to get a flat tire on the way home and think it's my fault. But anyway, uh, next time you face a trial, having just talked about this, maybe we'll go, oh yeah, rewards. Okay, this is my opportunity. It's a test. And I love you, Lord. I don't know why this is happening, but I'm going to live for you and I'm going to respond appropriately to this trial. And so that's what I mean by motivation. But you're right. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's our hard attitude of service to the Lord. All right, well, let's... Um, Let's take a break. We'll come back together here at 10 o'clock at Plum Creek Chapel. Those of you joining us online, the live stream usually kicks in sometime between 1025 and 1035 Mountain Time.